From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that truly matters. On August 30th, 2021, nearly 20 years after they got there, the last U.S. troops left Afghanistan. It was not an orderly departure. The whole world watched in horrified fascination as people, including many Afghan citizens, attempted to leave the country before it completely reverted to Taliban control. Terrible scenes included people holding onto and falling off a U.S. plane as it took off and a suicide bombing at the Kabul airport that killed nearly 100 people, most of them Afghan citizens. And now, some six months later, for the most part, the world has stopped looking stopped paying attention, and it must be assumed, stopped caring about Afghanistan and the people who remain there. So today we're talking about Afghanistan, and I'm joined by Tajrina Sajad. Tajrina is a professor here at the School of International Service. She's also an expert in refugees and forced displacement and post-conflict governance. Before she came to SIS, Tajrina worked in the Afghanistan program at Global Rights in Afghanistan. And Tajrina, thank you for joining Big World. Thank you so much for having me back on your show, Kate. Yeah, I'm so thrilled that you that you came back and that we can talk about this uh, important subject, Tajrina, because I, as I mentioned in the intro, prior to joining SIS, you worked in the Afghanistan program at Global Rights in Afghanistan. You also served as a research consultant at the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, and you wrote a book titled Transitional Justice in South Asia, a Study of Afghanistan and Nepal, which was published in 2013. So this is pretty close to your work, this subject. How did you become interested in Afghanistan? If I reflect on my uh, ongoing interest and uh, commitment to Afghanistan, I'd have to actually go back a long way into my past. Mm -hmm. My earliest memory of Afghanistan is probably being introduced to Rabindranath Tagore, who was a Nobel laureate's uh, book, uh, Kabuliwala, which was a poignant story uh, between a little girl and an Afghan migrant. But the story was also striking, and it is a powerful read because it's a reflection on the loneliness, the isolation, the alienation of the migrant experience, the need for hope and belonging, and the fear and suspicion associated with whoever is considered the other. And that really helped me reflect a lot on my experiences and my family's experiences, but also knowing individuals who were Afghan, who traced their ancestry back to Afghanistan and my own family members who uh, did seek shelter in Afghanistan at different moments in time in uh, political turbulence in my country of birth. But professionally speaking, I would say that my work on Afghanistan began in 2001, right after the fall of the Taliban um, and the signing of the Bonn Agreement. And the project I was working on was with regard to the rule of law and democracy promotion in the country. After that, I, as you mentioned, worked with the Global Rights Rule of Law and Transitional Justice Program in Afghanistan and then shifted to work with the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit. And of course, when we talk about Afghanistan, we do have to talk about both the country and the people who live there now and the displaced people. And according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Afghans make up one of the largest refugee populations worldwide. And people are obviously aware of the scenes from this past summer when the U.S. withdrew and everyone was paying attention. But which other events, both historically and more recently, have contributed to this long-standing displacement crisis where there are so many Afghans who do not feel that they can live in Afghanistan? 
I'm not a historian by training, and I approach the subject of Afghanistan's history with great humility, uh, considering there is so much to unpack about the country's rich past mm -hmm. uh, when examining its different periods of political upheaval. But if I were to offer a quick overview, I would identify a few specific periods of time when large-scale displacement has taken place. So in contemporary history, I would say that Afghanistan's forcible displacement crisis began with the former Soviet Union's invasion of the country that lasted for almost a decade, and then its withdrawal, the violent civil war that erupted after the Soviet withdrawal, and the infighting that began between the different Mujahideen leaders, and finally, of course, the arrival of the Taliban. And the Taliban was formed in the early 1990s by the Afghan Mujahideen who had resisted the Soviet occupation. Uh, at receiving covert backing from the CIA and its Pakistani counterpart, the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, the ISI, and, and comprised of largely younger Pashtun tribesmen who had studied in Pakistani madrasas. The Taliban entered Kandahar in 1994, and uh, by September 1996, it had captured Kabul from then-President uh, Burhanuddin Rabbani. And in the last 20 years of an ongoing occupation, uh, there have also been periods of heightened levels of insurgency and turmoil, uh, particularly following 2004. And so Afghans have continued to flee from different provinces because of complex and intertwined reasons. And the list is actually quite long. And if I were to offer a few of the uh, factors as to why there has been ongoing forcible displacement from Afghanistan, one is, of course, the reemergence of the Taliban. The other factors are the rise of other armed groups and violent networks, generalized violence in the country, political and targeted assassinations, persecution, harassment and intimidation, severe economic uncertainty, lack of employment opportunities and educational opportunities, endemic and systemic corruption, together with poor governance and uh, weak rule of law. And then, of course, ongoing U.S. drone strikes, U.S. and NATO military operations and counterterrorism operations that have also disrupted the lives of people. And then, of course, um, while there is still a prevalence of talking about climate change or the climate crisis as a depoliticized and a separate and independent factor that is causing displacement, climate crisis, of course, is a product of a result of complex factors, including internal and external political factors, and the failure to respond to these outcomes, together with the realities of corruption, poor governance, weak rule of law, they have also been a source of major displacement over the recent years from Afghanistan. And one more question about refugees, and then I want to turn to Afghanistan itself. But as we all know, the Taliban did take back control of Afghanistan in 2021, and the U.S. did completely withdraw from the country. And it's likely that the number of displaced people will continue to rise. And I know that you've written in the past, and we talked about this in a previous episode on this program, that in general, refugees who end up in wealthy countries receive most of the media attention or the wealthy countries receive the attention, while the truth is that most refugees end up in neighboring countries that can ill afford to house them. So where are most Afghan refugees going? There's been an overt focus, international media focus, certainly U.S. media focus on the thousands of people who have been trying to flee Afghanistan. And a lot of that focus has been on the harrowing images we have seen from Kabul airport. 
today we have about 74,000 or a little more uh, Afghans who have been given permission to live in the United States. And they are struggling with different types of legal status and also facing a complex web of obstacles and uncertainties about, uh, upon their arrival. But the focus, as you rightly pointed out, has been extremely disproportionate because in, in the broader context, refugees and asylum seekers from Afghanistan are trying to flee uh, within a global climate, which is dictated by anti-immigrant sentiments for sure, but there are also twin challenges right now. That is, they're being produced during the period of time of a global pandemic. And then there are also economic pressures and uncertainties that are compounded by the pandemic. The three countries in the actual front lines with regard to receiving Afghan refugees and have been playing the largest role are, of course, Pakistan, Iran, and to some extent, Turkey. In fact, at the time of the US, withdrawal, there were more than 1.4 million registered Afghan refugees alone in Pakistan, and then nearly about 800,000 registered uh, Afghan refugees in Iran. But both these countries have also hosted a large uh, population of unregistered Afghan refugees, which means in Pakistan, there have been over 3 million Afghans. In Iran, taking into account 2.3 million unregistered Afghans, the total number has also been upward of 3 million. Today, of course, the numbers are still sketchy because the situation is fluid. This is happening uh, despite the fact that in recent years, Pakistan has attempted to push Afghans back across the border using different strategies, including uh, trying to close down the camps. Uh, it's uh, the Pakistani military building a fence along the what is known as the Durand Line, which is a 1600 plus mile border with Afghanistan. Uh, and that despite Iran being one of the countries that have been deeply impacted by COVID, together with, of course, its own internal challenges, another at least about 300,000 Afghans have already entered Iran. And the rate is uh, close to about between 4,000 to 5,000 a day. Um, and they're largely crossing uh, through uh, uh, informally across the border. Compared to Afghanistan, uh, sorry, Pakistan and Iran, there are a smaller number of Afghans who are trying to enter Turkey. And Turkey, as we already know, is the world's largest refugee host with 3.6 million registered Syrian refugees. Many of the Afghan refugees in Turkey, because they are not able to find uh, any kind of protection or any form of economic stability, have tried to move on to Europe. But we already also know that largely speaking, Europe and the European Union are very disinterested in taking in more refugees and asylum seekers. And then there are smaller numbers of refugees, uh, Afghan refugees, uh, who have managed to cross Afghan borders, and they're still trying to attempt to enter countries in Central Asia. But this has been extremely challenging, particularly during COVID times, because there's quite a number of border Closures. So countries like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan are some of the countries where the Afghans are trying to try, try and cross into um, and many of them are not able to do so. Tazrina Sajad, it's time to take five. And this is when you, our guest, get to blue sky it and change the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practice that you believe would change the world for the better. For you, what are the first five things that you would do to help displaced Afghans and others seeking refuge? 
First, tens of thousands of Afghans remain at risk and have been left behind, and there are 40,000 applications for humanitarian parole that have been filed. So there are several things that can be done, for instance, continuing of evacuation efforts, including of expanding capacity for flights and visa processing, stopping asking uh, uh, special immigrant visa uh, uh, recipients to get their passports, birth or marriage certificates from the Taliban, allowing virtual visa interviews, waiving the humanitarian parole fees, refunding fees for Afghans who are denied visas. And then, of course, through the priority or P2 program, um, thinking of alternative ways in which uh, third countries, uh, uh, this requirement can be waived so that people who qualify for the P2 program can enter the United States. And then, of course, creating new pathways of protection, including a designated humanitarian parole program. Number two, for those who are already in the United States, there needs to be emergency funding for the rapid ex expansion of the resettlement agencies, along with national organizations and local affiliates. They require a lot more access to funding to provide for different kinds of facil uh, facilities for Afghans, including, of course, uh, trauma and, and other immediate, uh, emergency services. There's an Afghanistan Adjustment Act that there's a great push for, and that would allow for legal, legal protections for Afghans who are being paroled into the country to allow them to have permanent residency. And then establishing a permanent unit to obviously support Afghan refugees coming in. And there's an important need to, of course, extend and maximize housing capacity. Number three is, of course, keeping the focus on countries that are actually in the front lines. They have their own security concerns, their own political struggles, economic struggles, and yet they need an incredible amount of support to provide the, the kind of support structure and sanctuary that is needed and required by Afghan refugees. Number four is as many of the, there are Afghan refugees in the world, there are so many more who are internally displaced. And it's important to listen to the demands of the Afghans on the ground and to keep that attention and commitment uh, focus. And long after Afghanistan fades from the news, there are millions of people who will continue to need assistance, but in ways that will give them ownership over their lives in the country. And the fifth is more broadly speaking about refugees and asylum seekers. There has to be a lot of soul searching and there needs to be a step back in trying to reflect on how we have come to this point where the long history of criminalization and politicization of refugees, asylum seekers, and more broadly speaking, migrants, have now become so institutionalized. A broader approach needs to be rethought of, where pat oneself on the back in terms of receiving a small number of refugees, but ensuring systems and structures are sustained, which uh, allow for the human suffering to be naturalized and normalized, those need to be challenged. Only then can we talk about addressing questions of migration in a whole other way. Um, without that, of course, we are still obviously locked in a lose-lose in, in a situation uh, where uh, the politics of fear wins every time. Thank you. So looking inside Afghanistan, there is growing concern for the safety of Afghanistan's ethnic minorities, its journalists, government workers, educators, human rights activists, and especially Afghanistan's women and girls who remain in the country after the Taliban takeover. What is happening to the Afghans who are displaced or remain 
within its borders, particularly those groups that I mentioned? So this is a pretty complex question. Um, and it's in a way, I, it's, it's, a, it's impossible to answer it in terms of its uh, in providing a comprehensive picture, because first of all, I'm not in Afghanistan. And right. of course, things on the ground are actually quite fluid. Let me engage with this with the utmost humility, uh, I, because I recognize that Afghanistan, of course, comprises of 34 provinces. It's a pretty big country and there are notable differences, economic, social, political, between and among each of these provinces, between Kabul, the capital and the other cities, between urban and rural areas and between the diverse people with a complex interplay of ethnic, tribal, class identities and political affiliations who live in each of these uh, provinces, cities, and urban areas. I do want to say that even prior to the U.S. withdrawal, the number of Afghans who were forcibly uprooted but confined within the country's borders was very high. And so by the end of 2020, there were 3.5 million uh, internally displaced people. And that was actually an 18% increase compared to the figures we had in 2019 and the highest figures we have seen in more than a decade. In short, even prior to the recent uh, crisis that was precipitated by the U.S. withdrawal, Afghanistan was already facing one of the world's most acute internal displacement crises. And most of these factors are are still actually ongoing as well as their consequences. Uh, more than about half a million people have actually been displaced since uh, President Biden announced troop withdrawals in April of last year. And since the withdrawal, the situation in the country for many Afghans have uh, have been extremely dire. So at one level, there has been threat, intimidation, persecution, assassinations, arbitrary detentions, beatings, uh, beheadings being carried out largely by the Taliban against, as you mentioned, the ethnic Hazara population, journalists, female judges, female lawyers, political leaders, uh, students, members of the Afghan military and Afghan police, and certainly those who have served or who are suspected to have served with the U.S. military and NATO forces, along with, of course, international NGOs and any other external actors. And despite the fact that Taliban had announced a general amnesty, um, there have been at least about uh, more than 100 killings of former Afghan national security forces and others associated with the former government, majority of which uh, have been perpetrated by the Taliban. And then there are horrifying anecdotes of the Taliban sending threatening letters of intimidation. In the past, they used to be called, quote unquote, night letters. They are circulating blacklists. They're conducting door to door searches. There, uh, there are executions uh, at checkpoints and, and in public spaces. There's the beating of journalists. There's posting of false information to draw out uh, whoever is considered a dissident or individuals who are desperate to leave Afghanistan through the use of social media. There's a severe monitoring of social media, which means a lot of people are really afraid to express their political opinion and, and to engage with each other uh, over this platform. And even students, such as the alumni of the now dissolved American University of Kabul, which was uh, established uh, via USAID funding, are being labeled as traitors and collaborators of the United States. And they are also being hunted down, forcing many of them to go into hiding. 
But all of this is also unfolding at a time when UN and other major agencies, including the World Food Program, for instance, has already declared that Afghanistan is facing a dire humanitarian crisis. And this is compounded by the winter weather Mm -hmm. and, of course, COVID-19. UN and international agencies have already calculated that at least 23 million people will be facing hunger. And then the UN Children's Fund has estimated that 1 million Afghan children are at the risk of starvation. Over 4 million children are out of school, 60% of whom are uh, girls, because the Taliban also has very rigid stipulations about um, school attendance, particularly of girls. And so there's been a decline in girls' secondary school attendance. But there are other things also we need to pay attention to. There has been resistance against the Taliban, particularly in the Panjshir Valley. There's been courageous resistance of journalists who have, despite the fact that they have faced so many threats, intimidations, and violence, continued to try and capture some of the uh, uh, developments in the country Um, And there has been a resistance of women's rights activists and human rights activists and and articulation of specific demands made to the international community. Perhaps there are some things that may be in the works with regarding trying to think of creative ways to reach humanitarian assistance, circumventing the Taliban, because the freezing of Afghan assets is ultimately, of course, impacting the Afghan population the most. So... Last question, and I want to make sure that we focus on the most important thing. Tajrina, I've, I believe from th- reading things that you've written and, and hearing you talk, that it's safe to say, I think, that one of the parts about this that is so troublesome, <laughs> which is an understatement, is the fact that the actual Afghan people and the future of their country has seemed to get lost in the story of the U.S. withdrawal and all the, the drama. And you just spoke about groups living in the country who are living uh, with increasing hardship and, and fear. So my last question is, what would you like to see for the people of Afghanistan, uh, both in terms of those who remain and those who felt they had no choice but to leave. And I don't know if this is in terms of self-determination or how you would frame it, but what would you most like to see for this country and its people? That is, you know, (laughs) that is such a powerful question and I'm very hesitant to answer it because first of all, I think that answer best comes from the Afghan people Mm -hmm. and and the Afghan people do not necessarily speak with one voice. And I think, uh, you know, in, in this effort of state building and peace building, not just in Afghanistan, but elsewhere, there has been a privileging of elite voices, you know, uh, and in some ways, of course, I'm part of that because I, I am part of the intellectual elite, um, even though in many other ways, I'm not part of the elite structure. But I think that, you know, when we only focus on those who are on the outside talking about what is next for the Afghan people, and what should be done, uh, I, I, I think, you know, we lose focus on the fact that this country is, as, you know, is an independent, autonomous country with an incredibly rich history, with an incredibly uh, rich history of uh, intellectual development and growth scholarship of historians, of philosophers, of writers and thinkers. Um, 
of people from all walks of life and who are the you know who are best poised given the opportunity to be able to shape uh you know a, a trajectory for themselves unfortunately for afghanistan you know i i do want to say one thing and i and i think it's very important that i say it because whenever the conversation about afghanistan actually comes up it is almost always wrapped up in some kind of mythology or in some kind of cliche trope uh, one of them obviously is the fact that afghanistan is the graveyard of empires and it this and this has been challenged so many times by afghan historians and post colonial scholars um as well as of course serious scholars of afghanistan but this myth absolutely refuses to die i think first and foremost it is important um to really pay attention to what exactly is going on in the country uh it is important to pay attention to the diverse range of voices and demands being placed with the multiple challenges that the country is facing but at the same time not holding the people hostage to you know great power politics which has always been the case um it is important to consider you know in terms of you know the people who have left afghanistan they are having facing multiple kinds of challenges what are their needs what are their priorities um what are the challenge their challenges they are facing in terms of every border they are encountering and how best to support them in terms of being able to seek sanctuary and then of course in terms of moving forward i mean the taliban will not be there forever um and it is important to think about where where and how leadership afghan leadership in all its various forms can be supported so that you know the resistance will is there you know it will go through ebbs and flows but it it needs to be supported in different ways it needs to be acknowledged in different ways and the challenge in afghanistan is not just the taliban it is not so simple as that and so those opportunities should be encouraged should be created um and afghan people should be in the driving seat of the ongoing project of nation and state building at every step of the way it is not for outsiders to wax and wane about the future of afghanistan without centering the people of afghanistan at every step of the way tasrina sajad thank you for joining big world to discuss afghanistan it's it's been really informative to speak with you thank you Thank you so much. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you'll leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be like finding an unopened holiday present in the back of the closet with your name on it. Our theme song is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Kotman. Until next time. Music